But we need to be people of rest. There is something powerful that happens when we just stop. Sometimes we just need a place of quiet. Sometimes we need that place where we're quiet enough we can actually hear the voice of God. The world is noisy. Our lives get noisy. We as Americans lean into that noise. But we have to learn that there is a different way to live. As we began this season of the church, as I began to think about what, you know, what do we want to learn about? What do we want to be looking at in our teaching over the next few months, I had a calendar really written out that would take us all the way up through Christmas, and then we were going to follow the church calendar and go into Lent and then Easter and have all this kind of planned out. October was, a, you know, kind of planned out a series here, and as I kept getting closer to it, I thought, something doesn't feel right. Some, something's missing here. And the more that I began to look at my own life, the more I began to look at my friends and people around me, I realized we're all exhausted again. We're all so busy. It just doesn't stop. And I thought, what if we took a, a break? What if we stopped for a moment and did a slow series, a seven-week series, taking us to Thanksgiving to talk about the reality of Sabbath, Really, it's a gift of Sabbath. Um, some of us, we could call it a command, but I think it's more of a gift of Sabbath that God gives to us that says, look, you are not made to run a million miles an hour. You, you are not made to live in such a way that you never experience physical and spiritual and emotional rest. You're not made for that. It says you are created and made to experience rest in the arms of Jesus. Like, that is just incredible to think about. That our Heavenly Father looks at us, <laughs> come, come rest in my arms. Come experience this rest. So we're going to go into this series. And I, it's one of these things that I always tell people, I'm, I'm not going to preach a series unless I know that I'm going to learn from this series as well. And so this series, as I started to put it together this week, as I began to put the sermon together, I walked away from it thinking, man, I needed to hear this. And so what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to join me in a journey here, a journey that's going to challenge us. Um, we're going to have to have some honesty with ourselves and with each, with each other. Um, I'm going to be really honest about the places that I struggle to take Sabbath and I want us to walk through that together. But now, it, you're here today, and, and maybe you've been around church for a long time. Maybe you've heard the word Sabbath. Maybe you have a, an idea of what that means. Um, maybe you're new to church or haven't been around church for a long time, and you think, I don't really understand Sabbath. That sounds like a super churchy word. Um, so I really want to just dig into what does that mean. And I, I'm going to be honest with you that one of the things that I looked at in this series, I said, I don't think I really know what Sabbath is. I sat back and I looked at it and I said, you know, I don't think I really understand the origin of this. I don't think I really understand the dynamics of it. And I think this is something that I really need to learn. Not just how to do, 
But where does this come from? Why does this matter? Why is this so important? Now, to do that, um, I want us to go back to the beginning, to Genesis. We're, we're going to start at the book of Genesis, and this series is going to start there. We're going to end up with a lot of different scriptures, but we need to start at the very beginning because that's where the story, the idea of Sabbath begins for us in our scriptures. Now, I try to address this every time we come to this passage, so I, I do want to address this because I think it's important for us to be reminded of this. And I think you're going to see this as we get into this, why uh, what I'm going to talk about here matters. The purpose of Genesis, and I, and I always try to come to this, the purpose of Genesis wasn't scientific in the way that we think about it. Genesis 1 wasn't written to instruct its readers about modern understandings of astronomy or zoology or geology, because that scientific knowledge that we take for granted didn't yet exist. So they weren't trying to teach us about those ideas. A more helpful reading of Genesis is not to say, okay, so what does this have to tell me about astronomy? What does this have to tell me about zoology? What does this have to tell me about geology and the planet? What does this have to teach me about that? There is a more helpful understanding for it that it's really looking through a lens of theology. So what I want us to do is when we look at this book, we look at this ancient text, we have to understand that the writers are not standing up going, okay, in 2,000 years, somebody's going to read this book. That's the first thing. And the second thing is, as they write, they're saying, the readers of this, the people that this is written to, they are to read it through a lens of theology. They're asking questions about, who am I? Who is God? What, what is this world, and how do I serve him in this? How do I relate to God? This is the central question that Genesis 1 is asking of people. Now, here's another really fascinating part about this, too. Rather than describe the past, Genesis, like a lot of other ancient texts, serve the writers as they wrestle with their present reality and how they relate, relate to God in their present circumstances. Does that make sense? We, we don't think like this. We think of historians sitting down and they write a book and they say, this is what happened. This is how it happened. This is who was involved in it. Here's the dates that matter. And you probably, you know, went through high school and, and, and some of you probably had wonderful teachers who helped you make history come alive for you to see why it matters. But so many people have a look at historians and have a look at historic writing as this is telling me events that took place. But the ancient writers were totally different. When they wrote about events that took place, they weren't really as interested in what exactly happened. And that's alarming to us. Because we go, what does that mean? How, how am I supposed to deal with that? What am I supposed to do with that? But that's a good thing. Because now we understand. They're writing to their peers in their present reality and saying, we are trying to understand how we relate to God let me tell you a story. Let me tell you about something that took place that has everything to do with who you are today. And so the text comes alive in such a unique, in such a fascinating way when we do that. So we ask, who are we? Who, who is God? You know, what is God's nature is God active in the world? 
And what does God want for us? And these are all theological questions. And what's fascinating is if you go to the ancient world, there were, there were books, there were texts that were scattered that were asking these questions. What's incredible, when we begin to look at the Hebrew Scriptures, we begin to look to these texts about God, is how different this God is from all of these other gods around. Uninterested, inactive, angry. The picture painted is so different by these writers, by the authors. And what's really cool is, they don't just do it in a way where they give, you know, A, B, C type answers. Because they write it in poetry. Poetry, like music, is a completely different genre of how we understand things. So when we come to this text, again, here's some really cool stuff. Not only is this a person writing to their people at their time, helping them understand in the past how that impacts their present, but they're also writing it in poetic language. So as I read this text, I realize most of us don't speak Hebrew. If I pulled out the Hebrew text and I began to read it, it would be lost on us. And most of the, most of the ways that the Hebrew text works in poetry would be lost on us because we don't understand ancient Hebrew poetry. So what I want you to do, and this is what we're going to have to do, is I want you to put on that part of your brain. I want you to turn off that part of your brain that is the part of your brain that, that, that builds with or that puts things, you know the Ikea side of your brain? Turn off that side of your brain for just a moment. I want you to put on your music brain. I want you to put on your coloring brain. I want you to put on your gardening brain. I want you to put on that brain where you begin to see and begin to hear and begin to listen in a very different way. Does that make sense? And so as I read this, I think that will help us understand this text in a little bit different way as we begin to explore the reality of Sabbath. So I invite you, see, hear, feel the words of creation in this incredible ancient Hebrew poem. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that it was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let gathered waters be called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. 
Now, you can probably see that there is a pattern developing in these words. You're probably beginning to see when we read it this way that there is a rhythm that is taking place that we even recognize in our English language. We can sense the rhythm taking place. And this rhythm is based on the work of the creative act. The recognition of the created act is good. And the passage of time from evening to morning, one day. And I just love this pattern. Because as you start to float into it, as you get into the rhythm of this, as you begin to feel the sense of that poetic, um, that, that just that poetic language, you can hear it and feel and move with it. God says, do, be, grow, make. This is good. Morning and evening, day. The pattern continues we read on. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with, with, um, teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the, of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the water and the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, and livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit and with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, all the birds in the sky... All the creatures that move along the ground. Everything that has breath in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And I just imagine, like I just imagine this person reading this text. I imagine children gathering in and they say, would you tell us the story? Would you tell us about the God of creation? Would you tell us about this? And they're sitting there listening and their imaginations are just exploding. <laughs> There's so much in this that our minds should just imagine the incredible wonder of these words. 
But guys, something strange happens here, and I want to address it. The books that made up the Bible didn't originally have chapters and verses. Did you know that? These divisions were created in the 14th and 16th century. Isn't that crazy to think about? Until the 14th and 16th century. There's no, there's no go to this verse, go to this chapter. You can't pluck something out and say, oh, I like this. I'll put this on a wall somewhere. It was all one big grand story all put together. Lots of oral tradition, lots of writings, lots of read this all together. But something happened here that as the people who began to make those divisions began to separate things into chapters and verses, during this process, they split this poem. The next part, the conclusion of the poem, goes into chapter 2. But for our purposes, and from now on, I want us to just read it as one big chapter. Because listen to how it goes on. And it's so easy to miss. If we just start in chapter 2, or if we just read chapter 1, if we don't see it as one big grand poem. Chapter 2 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Now, guys, the person reading this is not some boring professor standing. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Because all the kids would leave. They'd all walk away. Nobody's going to sit around a fire They want to hear that, are they? Oh, they're going to sit together and they're going to tell us the story. And I imagine this person reading this is just arms raised, dancing, singing, excited, just, whoa! Thus the heavens and the earth, and everybody's like, yeah! We're completed in all their array. They're all standing up and they're like, yeah! It's like, this is like the, the pivotal moment. This is where the drums kick in. This is where all the excitement takes place. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. What a weird story. Who wrote this? Shouldn't it end with something like, well, then the heavens and earth were created. So stand up with me and shout and sing, celebrate, recognize your creator, you worthless humans, right? I mean, there's something should be taking place here. That's how I would have written it. But he ends it so weird. He's like, and then this God with the power to create, the power to call things forth, the way to bring all this chaos into order has to sleep and take a nap. Everybody goes, what kind of God is this? What kind of God rests? What kind of God gets to the end of a week like this and says, well, that was fun, but I'm going to take a break for a while. What kind of God does the Forrest Gump where he's running and he stops and he turns and everybody looks at him waiting for this great speech and he goes, well, I'm going to go home now. They go, what is going on? What kind of God is this? And that's the question we should ask. It doesn't make sense to us. It seems weird. It seems out of joint with how we understand how things would work. So the word translated rest here is the Hebrew word Shabbat, 
which was eventually transliterated into this word that we have called Sabbath. So it went from Hebrew, it went to Greek, it went to English, and it becomes this word that we call Sabbath. Now, this is one of those strange places. Why not just say rest day? Or God had a stop day. Why don't we just say then God took a nap? Why do we have to always use in church these bizarre words? Why do we say things like baptism? Why don't we just say the old Duncan party? Why, why do we say things like communion? Why don't we say juice and bread time? Why, why do we say things like, join me for the blessing and the benediction, instead of the things we read on the screen at the end of the day? Why do we create all these weird words? Because these words matter. There is a deeper meaning. We're meant to wrestle with it. It is meant to feel out of joint with our lives because our lives push us away. Our lives have a tendency when we lean into the busyness, into the craziness, into what we think we're supposed to be doing on this earth, it takes us away from this rhythm of grace and life and community. Baptism matters because baptism isn't just the old dunking party. It's a celebration of somebody being made completely brand new through Jesus. Man, that deserves a word, doesn't it? And this deserves a word as well. We don't want to just say God's nap time. We don't want to just say rest. We don't just want to say let's take a stop day. Because there's something powerful here. It's a Sabbath. We find in verse 3 where language, poetry, and theology converge. Listen to this. It doesn't just stop in verse 2. He rested from all his work. Could just stop there? Listen, verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, before we get into that, I want, I want you to see something significant that I really want us to see here. If you Google the seven-day week, as many of you might do, you'll go home and be like, I want to learn more about this. Where did this whole seven-day you know, week thing come? Where, where did we find this? How did this happen? You're going to find this idea all throughout all kinds of civilizations. You're going to find it in all kinds of history. Uh, as we look back, we see that um, definitely there is a seven-day work week with the Sumerian people. They had some kind of impact on the Babylonian people. The Babylonians were the ones who captured the Israelites and took them into captivity, most likely when Genesis 1 was written down into what I just read. So here they are impacted by the reality of the people around them, of this seven-day week. So we have to look into it and see that there is this idea, but there's something taking place that other people get the idea of this rhythm. But something is happening here that if we miss it, we miss what is really special about it. See, those ancient calendars, Sumerians and Babylonians and other cultures, based this seven-day work week, or seven-day week, the idea of the months, the idea of year, time, on the movement of planets, stars, phases of the moon, 
It's why we see temples scattered all over the place of the genius of people. I can't think we could do this today that knew exactly when the sun was going to come through a certain spot and come and light up a certain place. Because everything was based on these calendars, planets, stars, phases of the moon. But the author of Genesis did something completely different with the seventh day. Rather than the circumstances of creation creating this day. Do you see this? Rather than saying, and so the planets moved in just the right way, and the moon did this, and the stars did this, and therefore we get seven wonderful days. The author says, no. It's not the circumstances of creation that are creating this day. It's God's activity that deems it a holy day of rest. A rhythm of life not bound to circumstances but given as a gift by God. A reminder of his presence, his provision, and his love. Isn't that awesome? Not impacted by any of these outside circumstances. Not impacted by moon phases or, or how the stars move. Not having to add extra days because that doesn't make any sense. It didn't work out that way. No, no, no. Because it is built into the rhythm of God's grace. In his mercy. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So the seventh day is not just a stop day, it is the only day in this creation poem that has no end. There's no evening, there's no morning, there's no more chaos, there's completion. There's no more darkness to experience, but only light. There is eternal rest in God's presence. On this final day, there is no work to be done. There is only worship and rest. And God says, I'm blessing this and making it holy. Because this is my rhythm. And this is my gift to you. Now we know that this isn't the reality of our world, right? The author paints this picture because this isn't the reality of their world either. The scriptures go on, it tells the story of brokenness that comes after this. People find themselves tied to the chaos of survival in light of humanity's sin. But the story of God's love and action, seeking to restore, redeem, renew his creation, continues. And central to that is the Sabbath, given as a gift in the present as a reminder of what took place here and what is to come. Central to this idea of God rescuing, redeeming this world, putting it back together is the chaos of this world. The brokenness of our reality made possible by sin. The rescue, the redemption of that is eternal rest. A day of rest with God, with no end. No evening, no morning, no darkness, no light. Just the presence of God. As part of this, the ancient people were reminded then to reenact, to participate in the divine story, anticipating and participating in the holy day of rest. 
Now, we find one of these reminders in the book of Exodus. The people were given laws that would govern their society after their rescue from slavery in Egypt. So here they are working and working and working and working. No rhythm, no rest, just constant chaos. And they're rescued from that. They're rescued into something new, into a new reality of life. And one of the major laws that they're given is this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So they've been given a gift of freedom, yet they could easily so forget one of the aspects of that gift, which is God's provision of rest. And then here's what's really cool about that. On that day of rest, they will experience God's presence because, remember what he said? This day is to be holy. God blessed it and made it holy. The people are told here to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So we do with a weird word like holy. What does holy mean for us? Well, holy means set apart, different. But in the ancient Near East, mountains, temples, shrines, places where the moon phases came through were considered holy places. But this is a place where we find something strange. Time is considered holy. Time. Think about that. Time, if remembered, can be holy and can be when and not where God's presence is experienced. The passage goes on to tell them that this means for them. How does one keep this day holy? He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or your daughter nor your male or female servant nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Imagine looking at the people coming into your city and going, hey guys, congratulations, it is a day of rest. And they go, what are you talking about? It's a free day. It's a day of rest. Come with us. Check this out. See what God has given us. The text calls them back to the creation story, reminding them how this is grounded. Again, not in some design that they could come up with, but found in the very reality, the theological truth of who God is. For in six days, don't forget, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. As we close up, just a couple thoughts here. A few years ago, We were all stretched. We had too much to do and too little time to do it in. Then for many of us, the world stopped. Yet here we are. On the other side of that, I think, at least it's true for me, just as tired just as worn out and just as stretched as ever before. And the hypocritical thing is that during that time I said, what a gift we've been given. All this time to be together. There's a blessing found in this tragedy. Let's not forget that. Then the world comes to life and I say, oh, so much to do. I just wish I had more time. And so I just keep stretching and stretching and stretching. The circumstances of our lives forced us to stop. And you've experienced that before. And if you don't stop, you'll experience it again. Your body will tell you to stop. 
A job loss will tell you to stop. A tragedy in your life will tell you it's time to stop. But the problem is in those interruptions, we rarely learn anything from them. We find ourselves right back in the chaos of being stretched until our bodies or our jobs or our circumstances tell us again to stop. We're doing the same thing. We look around and we say, well, maybe the circumstances around me will tell me how I'm supposed to rest. Maybe if I just think about it in the circumstances of this world, thinking of moon phases or stars or planets, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll just I'll figure out a way to stop. And that is the wrong way to do it. Because we have a gift. We have a gift. My friend Daniel and I were talking about this series this week, and he said this to me. The key idea of Sabbath is that it's built into creation. And it's built into us. We intuitively understand this. We know we need it. We just don't always do it. So just do it. It's just not that easy, is it? We need some reminders. We need some guardrails. We need some steps that will help us lean into this. So as we close, I want to look at two lists. These lists are uh, adapted from a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it's one of the resources that we're using during the series. And I want you to look at this list, and I want you to see which one looks more like your present life. Ready? First list. Busy. Noise. Distraction. Confusion. Greed. Worry. Anxiety. Hurry. Or how about this list? Margin. Quiet. Delight. Clarity. Gratitude. Trust. Peace. Slowness. This isn't judgment. I'm just guessing that a lot of us are probably more in list one than list two. And this is a problem for me. And it's a problem for you if you're a follower of Jesus. And it's not just that it's an unhealthy way of life. Anybody, right, would benefit a move from list two to list one. We wouldn't look at anybody and say, I wish the people lived more like list two or list one. We want people to look like list two. The problem for followers of Jesus is this. That first list is out of rhythm with God's desire for your life. It's hard to follow. It's hard to listen. It's hard to live like Jesus in the chaotic world of list one. So God... Gave you a gift to shift your life to list two. To come and find rest in the Sabbath gift. God's desire is for us to find a new rhythm. Modeled for us by this picture of creation. Given to us as the gift of Sabbath rest. Not bound by chaos. Not bound by circumstances of our life. But found in the rhythm of the grace and love of God. So today, here's what I invite you to do. Join me. 
join me in this and let's just see what happens if we begin to say, I am going to claim Sabbath rest. I'm going to learn how to say no to the chaos and to the circumstances that have put me out of alignment with a life of grace and the rhythm that is the love of God around me. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for this day, this time that we can gather together, this time to contemplate and begin to think about, begin to open up this series of this idea of rest. God, help us today as we gather together later on to enjoy that Sabbath reality, to see each other, to smile, to, to recognize the grace and the love found within our community here. God, we thank you for this. We ask that you would convict us and challenge us to learn the gift of Sabbath. It's your name that we pray. Amen.